turning point, this transition in chapter 12. And this has led to two divisions of the book of John and, and two titles given to those two divisions. Chapters 1 to 12 have been referred to as the book of signs. While chapters 12 to 20 or 12 to 21 have been called the book of glory. And if we think about that, it, it makes sense. Chapters 1 to 12 have largely been taken up with the seven signs that Jesus did. And now in chapter 12, the book of signs is coming to a close, and the book of glory is opening. Chapters 1 to 12 focus on three years in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The second half of the book, chapters 12 to 21, largely focus on the last three days of his life. The focus hones in on his passion, his glorification on the cross. And chapter 12 transitions us from the book of signs to the book of glory. In those verses I read, verses 36 and 37, we get that clear indication that Jesus' public ministry is coming to an end. And that there will be no more signs for those who have not believed in him. He had shown himself in these signs to be the Savior and the Messiah. But we read those tragic words in verses 36 and 37. After calling the people to believe in him before it's too late. We read, He departed himself and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That marked the end of the public ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see a clear transition. From here on, we're going to find Jesus withdrawing to the privacy of the upper room with his disciples. In chapter 13, he will dismiss Judas the traitor, and we'll find Jesus alone with his friends in the upper room. And in this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, the emphasis is very much on his impending death. But what is underlined for us by the Holy Spirit is the responses of these people or groups. How are these people responding to the grace and the love and the eventual sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And Jesus, keenly aware that his ministry was coming to a close, he sensed the urgency of the moment. And he calls these people to respond to him before it's too late. He said in verse 35, and he exhorts them with great urgency, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light. And friends, as we think about this chapter, we too should sense 
the urgency in Jesus' calls to embrace him. He's calls to us to respond to him in faith. Because what is highlighted throughout this chapter is these, these two responses to Jesus. And what is being driven home to us is a question, and that is, where are we today in relation to the Savior? Today we are in one of two places. We are either responding to him in faith, in obedience, in adoration, or maybe putting him off a little longer. Maybe waiting to see what, what he will do for us. We are either looking to Christ crucified, or we're looking at ourselves and asking, what is Jesus going to do for me? You see, we can be like these different groups of people. We, like these people, we have seen Jesus' signs through his word. We have heard him speak to us through his word. We have known the light of his presence. We can have all those things. And still not embrace him. We can have all of those things and yet be today undervaluing the one who is the pearl of great price. How are we responding to Jesus today? How are you responding to his tender calls to come to him? See, this was a critical moment of decision for this crowd. And it is for us as well, because we'll, we'll look at this more next week. But this chapter teaches us that there comes a time when the spiritual procrastinator has their eyes blinded forever. There comes a moment when it's too late, when having called to us again and again, just Jesus withdraws and hides himself from people. It should be no surprise to us then that in this chapter, the, the cross comes into very sharp focus. I mentioned to you before that in John's gospel, Jesus' hour... And the moment of his glory or his glorification, those are shorthand for his cross. Jesus knew that his hour had come, the moment of his glorification was imminent, wherein he would soon be lifted up from the earth. Listen to what Jesus said and listen to the focus upon his cross and his sacrifice. Uh, verses 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Verses 31 and 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John adds, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Our Lord knew that his hour had come. In less than a week, a week that would change history, Jesus will have been crucified and buried. His death for sinners was imminent. And the question for this crowd and the question for us today is where are we in relation to Jesus? Are we believing? Or are we disbelieving? And to press that a little bit further, maybe what kind of Jesus are you believing in today? Is it the Jesus revealed here and revealed in the scriptures? Or is it a Jesus of our own imagination? What is highlighted for us throughout this chapter is the responses of five different people or groups of people. And it's underlined that there are only two ways of responding to Jesus. We either respond in faith and adoration and trust, or there is rejection of the Lord Jesus. Have those bullet points in your outline. You can either look at those or look at chapter 12 here. In the first three verses, we have the beautiful response of Mary. A response of faith and adoration and love for the Savior. But then that's contrasted in verses 4 to 8 with the response of Judas. The response of false faith. A false disciple, which in the end is rejection and unbelief. In verses 12 to 19, we have the response of the crowd. And we'll be thinking about that in the second service. And in the end, it too was rejection and unbelief. Verses 30 to 33, the response of the Greeks, which was faith. They came not because they were fascinated. They came just to see Jesus. And then the chapter concludes with the response of the Jewish leaders, a response of hatred and rejection of the Savior. So we'll just be thinking about the responses of Mary and Judas and how those are contrasted for us. And so let's think about the response of Mary. The chapter opens with a dinner to celebrate the resurrection of Lazarus. It was a dinner to remember what Jesus had done for his friend. It was a dinner to express gratitude to the Lord. And I've tried to highlight this for you as we've gone through the Gospel of John. And it is, it is important for us to understand that these accounts are intended to reveal our hearts. We're not bystanders in these narratives. These are not things that just happened to one or two people 2,000 years ago. 
but they are pictures of the human heart. We are in this story. We are at the dinner. We are either responding to Jesus like Mary, or like Judas. But throughout, you'll find how Mary's response and Judas' response is contrasted for us. And we have here in these verses, I think one of the most beautiful and tangible expressions of love for Jesus that is found anywhere in the Bible. Mary's anointing its recorded to show us a true believer's response to the Lord Jesus. And, and you'll notice how she was known for this display of love. I was talking to my kids before bed last night. We were talking about the various Marys in the Bible. And I was telling them, hey, I'm going to be preaching about this passage on Mary. And they asked, well, which Mary? And John, it's interesting, back in chapter 11, verse 2, before this, this happened, or before it's recorded, he almost answers that question, which Mary was this? It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary was known for this beautiful display of love. And again, note the contrast. How was Judas known? Because there was more than one Judas, too. How was Judas known? The one who was about to betray him. This was a beautiful, lavish display of love. But what we need to keep in mind is this is not ultimately about Mary. This is about Jesus and his worth and his love. Now, it might be hard for us to grasp how lavish and costly this display of love was. It would be like a woman that you knew buying cologne for her husband that cost $2,700 an ounce, and you found out she bought him a 12-ounce bottle. Roughly $33,000 for a bottle of perfume. If we heard that, we would probably think, kind of a waste. Couldn't they have used that money for something else? More useful? But in this time, that was the exact cost. $33,000. And that's not adjusted for inflation. <laughs> Today would have cost roughly $78,000. A bottle of pure nard, likely imported from the Himalayas, a year's wages for the average person. Mary poured out a year's worth of wages onto the feet of the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is an expression of a heart devoted to Jesus, an expression of a heart humbled before 
the Lord. You notice that image of her at his feet. Great humility, great devotion. And it's it's interesting. I, I pointed this out in a reading of Exodus 29. It's interesting that one possible translation of verse 7 may indicate that Mary was aware that she was anointing Jesus for burial. The Greek is a bit hard to, to translate here, but the idea may be that Mary kept in view the day of his burial. Or at least she had this oil and she was keeping it for the day of his burial. Either way, it's clear that Mary had a level of understanding that it seems even the disciples did. That she took seriously Jesus' predictions about his death and the necessity of his death. And this fits with Mary, doesn't it? We, we, we read in Luke 10, for example, how you know, Martha's busy working. What's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. And this idea that, that Mary may have understood what she was doing here, anointing Jesus for his sacrifice, led one commentator to say, Mary was the best listener Jesus ever had. Can you imagine how long that pleasant smell lingered in that house? Verse 3 underlines that for us, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It likely lingered for years. That pleasant aroma was a testimony not just to Mary's love for Jesus, but ultimately to the infinite worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary wanted Jesus to have everything. She didn't hold anything back. There was nothing in life that was worth more to Mary than Jesus. But contrast that with the other response in the room. And it came out in a very subtle, yet sinister way. Mary's heart is seen in this act of lavish love and devotion, but Judas' heart is expressed in his view that this was stupid and a colossal waste of money. Judas looked at Mary's act of worship and love as being completely foolish and wasteful. So let's think about Judas' response, verses 4 to 8. We read in verses 4 to 6, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Well, notice how there is one verse devoted to Mary's act of love and adoration. And here we have three verses 
devoted to Judas, complex, sinister motivation. I think this is striking here because if we didn't have if we didn't have John's commentary, if we didn't know that Judas was a traitor and a thief, what would we think about this? I think I might have been torn. Was Judas right? Was this a waste? Or was Mary right? I think we need to let it let this disturb us. Because if we are honest, I think we can identify a bit with Judas' logic. He had worldly logic on his side. His sinister response is cloaked in good intentions or seemingly good intentions. And I think this can reveal that our lack of love for Christ, our undervaluing of Jesus can be more subtle and more sinister than we realize. We can delude ourselves. If we're believers, we can delude ourselves about our devotion to Jesus. Or we can devote, we can delude ourselves about where our hearts really are in relation to Jesus. This is probing and it's searching for us. Judas looked at Jesus with the accountant's mind. And what he was Revealing is what he thought about Jesus. He thought Jesus just wasn't worth it. This was a waste. And John's commentary tells us that in the end, he wanted this money for himself. Not only did he think Jesus was not worth it, but he wanted this for himself. And the Holy Spirit sees in this a clear revelation in Mary of the devoted heart of the believer. And in Judas, a revelation of an unbelieving traitor's heart. And again, friends, it presses the question upon us today, how, how lavish is our love? Or Jesus? Are we willing to let go of everything so that we can just have Him? Are we willing, like Mary, to look foolish for the sake of Christ? And not only was Mary's expression Costly. Not only was it humbling for her, but one commentator points out that the way chapter 11 ends, it's clear that anyone associated with Jesus would be in danger. Here Mary hosts Jesus in her home, shows this great display of love. You see, friends, Mary's gift 
to Jesus reminds us that Christ himself is the most remarkable gift of all. And for all who receive him, he's the gift of forgiveness of sins. He's the gift of new and eternal life. This is a commentary on the infinite worth of Jesus. And it reminds us that whatever we lose in this life, whatever we give up for Jesus' sake, will be completely worth it. Judas' response is a commentary on the tragedy of rejecting the free gift of Jesus. Judas' response reveals to us the danger of the accountant's mindset when it comes to following Jesus. If we come to Jesus and we're asking, I wonder how much this is going to cost me. Revealing that we're trying to decide if Jesus is really worth it. We're revealing that we just don't value him as we should. And this teaches us that the accountant's mindset is fatal when it comes to Jesus Christ. If we come thinking, How much will it cost me to follow Jesus? And how much will that leave left over for me? That will prove fatal in the end. And friends, if that's how you are approaching Jesus today, you will remain in a bondage and distrust of Jesus. Mary's love that act of devotion, it was a mystery. It was an embarrassment to Judas because he failed to see that Jesus is the pearl of great grace. And what we are called to today is an open-handed devotion to Jesus. And friends, we can come confidently giving up everything Because Jesus promises us that if we have him, even if we have to give up everything, even our own lives, we will gain everything. We will lack nothing. Is that not what David said in Psalm 23, verse 1? When he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, You kids back there, we don't really talk that way. What David means is, The Lord's my shepherd. I'm not going to lack anything if I have him. That's David's way of saying, if I have this shepherd, I will have all that I need. And even as believers, we can so easily lose sight of the infinite worth of Jesus. And we can come to follow him with that accountant's mindset. How much is this going to cost me? How much will be left over for me? And I think the longer we we walk with Christ, the more sense it should make to us. The Lord calls us to come into his presence on the first day of every week. 
Because for six days we're, we face the allurement of the world. For six days we're tempted to undervalue Jesus, but then he calls us together and we hear the gospel preached. We sit under the means of grace and, and we are reminded of the infinite worth of our Savior Jesus. We saw at the beginning, Christ's sacrificial death permeates this chapter. Because this is where we see the glory of Jesus. Where are we most reminded of his infinite worth and his grace and his love? Friends, the place where we come to comprehend most deeply that Jesus is the pearl of great price is his cross. The cross proclaims his worth. It proclaims his love for us. It reminds us that he loved us in our wretched state and redeemed us. Friends, it is a clear view of the cross. It will prompt in our hearts and our lives that same kind of lavish devotion that Mary showed to our Lord. Let's pray to you. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, your word is true. We trust that you will sanctify us by it, that you will convict us where convicting is needed. Lord, forgive us, undervaluing the pearl of greatness. Lord, elevate in our hearts and minds the Lord Jesus. May we see his worth as we look to his cross. May we see his love and devotion. And because he has first loved us, may we be moved to the same kind of lavish devotion an expression of love for our Savior. Lord, we thank you for Christ and him crucified. We pray these things in his great heart. Amen. Amen. Let's respond turning to 73C.